0: My friend, Bob Miller, uh, wrote this prayer, and I invite you to pray it with me. Father, when we hear about persecuted individuals, we can't help but wonder how we would stand up in similar circumstances. We don't know, but what we do know is that we would want other Christians praying for us, and we would want your presence with us. So we pray for our brothers and sisters in North Korea Somalia, Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, Sudan, Iran, Pakistan, Nigeria, Libya, Yemen, Uzbekistan, Ethiopia, Egypt, Myanmar, Palestine, the Palestinian territories, China, these United States that don't feel so united, and so many more countries. Would you give your people courage and grace would you help them to find a way to keep their Bibles, the story that gives them courage and hope? Would you enable them not to have to leave their homes? Would you comfort them, give them words to speak when they are taken before authorities? We ask above all that you would know that they would know that your presence is with them. Thank you for the example of the church in China, how it continues to grow. Thank you for the news we hear of a revival stirring in the Middle East, including Iran. Thank you for the thousands who are being drawn to you through dreams and visions of Jesus. We know that there is a spiritual battle going on between the darkness and the light. We know that spiritual battles cannot be won with physical weapons. So we focus our prayers on ISIS, Boko Haram, and Al-Qaeda, and our highest prayer is that they would turn to you You have a history of turning persecutors into radical followers. So we ask that revival would break out in their ranks. We would love to see them glorifying you as Lord. We would embrace them as brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray the same thing for our own government. But if they won't, we would ask that you would bring confusion to their camp And disunity in their ranks. And that you would thwart their plans and schemes. You would make their weapons ineffective. You would dry up their funding. You would dry up their strength. You would cause vehicles to break down. You would knock the wheels off their chariots and frustrate their communications. You know how to do it. You've done it before. We know from Revelation chapter 6 that you have a special place for those who give their lives for their faith in you. We know that in the end every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you are Lord. But today we ask that your strong presence would be with our brothers and sisters who are suffering because of their faith. And as we see and hear about the example of our brothers and sisters around the world and even here, would you help us not to love our lives more than we love you? So in the midst of turmoil, threats, accusation, help us to do what we sung about earlier today, and that is to follow you by turning our eyes to you. This we pray in the strong name of the one who understands persecution more than anyone else, your son Jesus, amen.
1: Good evening, my name is Mikhail, and I also get to serve as one of the pastors here But I am here because, um, in a nutshell, this is where I want to be. We are beginning the season of Epiphany tonight, Uh, although it is my last opportunity to say, Merry Christmas on this 12th day of Christmas. But as Pastor Chris already reminded us, epiphany is the season of both surprise and astonishment that launches tomorrow in our remembrance of the day uh, that we call epiphany, the day of epiphany, the day that we remember the magi who were epiphanied by the great star that they saw and came to worship Jesus. Throughout the seasons of this whole year, Beginning with Advent and Christmas and now Epiphany, we are seeking at 8th Street Church to understand and receive the healing that God promises and delivers in individuals and in relationships and in systems. And so in Epiphany, it seems that we find that God's healing is quite unexpected, perhaps even astonishing. We often come to God, or to the doctor for that matter, with our own diagnosis of things, and we come expecting and even asking for a very particular cure or prescription. Yet, we often find that God, and possibly our doctor too, offers a completely different diagnosis, and then a completely different cure. And this seems to be exactly what Jesus is doing in what we have come to call the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. This is Matthew's collection of Jesus' quintessential teachings in which it seems that Jesus pulls back the curtain not only to God and God's kingdom but also on our own souls so that we can see ourselves more clearly too. And if we are open to it, we will see healing that is both very unexpected and also desperately needed. And so throughout the season of Epiphany, beginning tonight, we'll take eight weeks to delve into Jesus' teachings on the Sermon on the Mount. Today, we will begin with a little bit of a prelude in Matthew chapter 4, to give us a proper introduction to what his words are all about. So tonight we will read from Matthew chapter four and I invite you now to stand as we honor the reading of God's word. Usually we read together out of the New Living Translation and there are Bibles offered to you, but tonight the best best version of these words is found in the New International Version. And so I invite you to turn your attention to the wall or just listen along if you'd like. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what had been said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness, have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. "'At once they left their nets and followed him. "'Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, "'James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. "'They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, "'preparing their nets. "'Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat "'and their father and followed him. "'Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, "'proclaiming the good news of the kingdom "'and healing every disease and sickness among the people.' News about him spread all over Syria, and the people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. These are the words of God for us, the people of God, and so we say together, Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You know, it's very appropriate that the gospel writer Matthew uses Isaiah's words about the people walking in darkness to describe how and where Jesus began his ministry. Let's remember that Jesus, or maybe find out for the first time, that Jesus was born into a people who desperately wanted healing. They knew that something was wrong, and they wanted God to make it right. They had been seeking it, praying for it, even working toward it for centuries. And to them, they had diagnosed their problem, and the only acceptable cure for their ailment was political autonomy. They yearned for freedom from the tyranny of non-Jewish empires, no less than the rebellion of Star Wars yearned for freedom from their empire. They longed for freedom from oppressive taxes, freedom from being heavily policed by foreigners who didn't speak their language or respect their religion at all. And the dominant religious groups read prophets like Isaiah and they understood this promised salvation was to come in what was called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the heavens. When the mighty Yahweh would once again avenge himself and his people and oust all of their enemies like he did with the Egyptians or way back in the good old days of judges. The kingdom of heaven... The coming reign of God was understood as this state of affairs, this beautiful, glorious place where there was God's salvation and deliverance. God's presence was there. There was justice and peace and there was great joy. And in a nutshell, it's this word shalom that shows up so often in Hebrew writings, this word of great peace and wholeness, things as they should be. And most people assumed that this would look like and could only come through a new political regime that reestablished the famed greatness of King David and King Solomon, and it would just be like the good old days again, a place without foreigners, without sicknesses, without poverty. And there were, of course, many different kinds of theories about how the kingdom of heaven would come and who would bring it about. But everyone whose opinion mattered, all the educated male folk, they agreed that the kingdom of God would look completely different than their current situation. And it would absolutely mean that the Romans, their hated enemies occupying their territory, would be gone So you can only imagine the stir it caused when Jesus began preaching everywhere he went, not just one time, but everywhere he went, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's here. It's closer than you think. And it's not only the way that he preached or the message that he preached, but imagine the stir caused because of where he became where he began preaching this message. In the furthest place one might imagine the kingdom of heaven coming near to. It wasn't in the temple, the housing place of Yahweh. It wasn't in Jerusalem or even the surrounding area of Judea where all the political and religious power players were. It was in the Galilee, a rural land full of hills and wild country a place long inhabited by Gentiles where Greek cities called the Decapolis or the Ten Cities were established along a trade route. It was an area of the country generally despised by the more well-to-do folks, a place that people would regularly refer to as hicks or hillbillies, people with strong accents and unsophisticated ways, but it was also a place of violence. Because for centuries, the Galilee area had, been, had given birth to violent, would-be messiahs. Yes, they were amidst a whole bunch of different cultures with Greek cities and Gentiles, but it wasn't that they were so metropolitan. They were actually deeply segregated and deeply prejudiced. And their proximity created a deeper sense of hatred and anger. And so they again and again and again people from the Galilee region led unsuccessful rebellions which were quickly and mercilessly squashed by the Romans. And so this violence begat more violence and violence begat more violence and violence begat more violence. And so the whole people of this area gained a really bad reputation, not only among the Romans but also among the Jews themselves. They felt like the Galileans made everybody else look bad. They caused too much trouble, and their shoddy attempts at overthrowing the government just made things worse for everybody. You may remember that in John's gospel, Nathaniel asked about Jesus, does anything good ever come from Nazareth? This is why. And so Jesus shows up in this very turbulent place, And this very turbulent time, and he preaches this message everywhere he goes. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And people flocked to him in droves. We just heard in the text today, men, successful men, dropped their careers and left their family businesses in the dust to learn from him and follow him. People came from miles and miles, over hundreds of miles traveled by foot or donkey, Jews and non-Jews alike, to be healed by Jesus. Have you ever read this and wondered why? What would entice you or me to leave our jobs? What would entice us to travel hundreds of miles with our family, to pack up our belongings for weeks at a time and go off and hear a guy preaching out in the middle of nowhere? Who would do this? And what would be so great that would entice us to go? I think one of the difficulties that we have is that it's, it's easy. We, we know that Jesus preached the gospel and what we hear in this text is that what Jesus preached was repent and believe the kingdom of God has come near but what we struggle with is how repent and believe that the kingdom of God has come near is good news how 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 is that good what does it mean i would Guess that your experience of the word repent is similar to my experience of the word repent, and it doesn't sound so great I'm not running after the street preachers that are yelling at me to repent (laughs) I'm usually running away from them But Jesus Isn't yelling at people He's not shaming them. It's not a threat In fact, the word that is translated in English language as repent is called metanoia in the Greek. And it literally means to turn, to reconsider, to rethink, to turn around, to think differently, to change your mind. So Jesus says, Hey, everybody, it's time to think differently about something. This kingdom that you thought was so far off and inaccessible to the likes of you, it is showing up in the here and now. It's not something far off into the future. It's not something just for the privileged or the powerful or the well-to-do. It is a present reality that has come to you. It is available now. And the people heard this as very good news. The long-awaited time when God's deliverance would be unleashed, when there would be joy and peace properly dispersed among all of the people, They loved it. And to demonstrate that it was really true, you know what Jesus kept doing? He kept modeling that the kingdom actually was there in their midst as he healed and healed and healed and kept healing, not just physical bodies, but also spirits and relationships. And so the people who had been living in great darkness, saw a great light. But I don't think that you or I need to be told about Galilee in first century Palestine to understand gloom and darkness. I think that we have plenty of our own experiences, individually and corporately, that have us feeling like we have been or currently are in darkness. Those situations of gloom where there are more things wrong in the world or perhaps wrong in our own lives than there is time or resource to fix them. That's gloom, my friends. Some of us have been in gloom, in darkness this week. Perhaps some of us, if we are honest, are sitting there right now. To be honest, I think the events that have gone through our news cycle just in the last seven days are enough to bring us into that place all on our own. Both locally and nationally and globally, we're constantly bombarded, we're constantly aware of darkness bad news, problems that are far beyond our capacity or resource to fix. And all of this has the effect, I think, at least for me, it has the effect of making me feel, if I were to visualize my emotional state, it's kind of like being down in my basement. My small, cramped, earthy-smelling, 100-and-plus-year-old basement that has no natural light and the door is somehow locked. I can't see my way around and I can't get out on my own. And whenever we are in this place of darkness or gloom, we tend to obsess on that one thing that's going to get us back on track. If we could just find that one tool down there in the basement, if we could just find that one flashlight that's hidden somewhere along this shelf, if we could just... We prescribe these things for ourselves. We tinker with this. We tweak with that. We try hard, and then we try harder, and we cycle back through the same things we've been trying again and again and again, but inevitably, we are still in darkness. And at that point, perhaps we're even banging our heads against the wall because we can't actually see. We're in darkness. And yet, into this darkness into this gloom. A light begins to glimmer and glow. But imagine, if you would, that you're down there in that dark space and the light that shines is not light from a flashlight or even somehow you stumbled upon a a light bulb. It's actually the door or being flung wide open or the earthen barrier to the outside being totally chopped down and carved out. And then as closer we get walking to the door, we see that the light is not just pouring in from the daylight outside, but it's actually the person who has opened the door is shining. This light shining upon us is the very person that Albert Einstein, which I think is So awesome. Of course, Albert Einstein would call Jesus the luminous Nazarene. And there Jesus is, the light, lighting up not just our room, but actually the light that's coming in is not for the benefit of us stuck in that tiny room. It's actually our escape route, And what we thought so badly we needed, just a little flashlight to fix what's in our own room, Jesus says, oh, I'm not here to help you fix the room. I'm here to bring you into a whole new space. And when Jesus shows up to say that the kingdom of God has come near, in effect, Jesus is saying, hey, y'all, I've invited you into my life. I've invited you into life with God. The two worlds that you thought were so far apart are actually much closer than you think. In his book, Conspiracy, uh, Divine Conspiracy, Dallas Willard talks, obviously in great length, about God's uh, transformational power within us. And he talks about his own experience growing up um, as a child to help us understand Jesus's invitation. As a child, I lived in an area of southern Missouri where electricity was available only in the form of lightning. We had more of that than we could use. But in my senior year of high school, the REA, Rural Electrification Administration, extended its lines into the area where we lived and electrical power became available to households and farms. When those lines came by our farm, a very different way of living presented itself. Our relationships to fundamental aspects of life, daylight and dark, hot and cold, clean and dirty, work and leisure, preparing food and preserving it, could then be vastly changed for the better. But we still had to believe in the electricity and its arrangements, understand them, and take the practical steps involved in relying on it. You may think the comparison rather crude, and in some respects it is, but it will help us understand Jesus' basic message about the kingdom of heaven if we pause to reflect on those farmers who, in effect, heard the message, repent, for electricity is at hand. Repent. Or... Turn away from their kerosene lamps and lanterns. Change their minds from ice boxes and cellars to freezers and refrigerators. Turn away from scrubbers and rug beaters, their woman-powered sewing machines and their radios with dry cell batteries. The power that could make their lives far better was right there near them where, by making relatively simple arrangements, They could utilize it. Strangely, a few did not accept it. They did not enter the kingdom of electricity. Some didn't want to change. Others could not afford it, or so they thought. And there is no suggestion that electricity hasn't happened yet, but it is about to happen, or that it's about to be there, possibly if someone welcomes it or lets it come. Rather, electricity has been there, but now it has become available. It existed before. It's available now. And similarly, the kingdom of God is also right beside us. It is indeed the kingdom among us. And so, Jesus comes to preach a good news message. That the kingdom of God, the power, the presence of God is closer than we ever imagined and is now available. And throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, he expounds on what that means for our lives and what life looks like once we come into this invitation. But I think we cannot rush on without first pausing long enough like the farmers did in 1930-whatever to consider what we will do with this kind of invitation What needs to change in our minds? What arrangements need to be made for us to rely on this new truth? In just a moment, we will participate by coming to the Lord's table together. But before we do that, I want to actually give us the gift of time. Very seldom do we allow ourselves time to process, time to think, time to feel. And I confess even as preacher that I don't often give you that time. And so I want to offer that to us now. I have some suggestions of questions you might want to consider over the next two minutes, but it's your time. So feel free to use it however you like. If you want to kneel, you're welcome to do that. If you want to sit and pray, whatever posture is good for you. But here's what I would like you to consider. How has Jesus shown up or is showing up now to light your darkness? And is God inviting you into something new right now? And then what do you need to receive today as we prepare to come to the table of our Lord? Take some moments, friends. And now we'll close us with a word of prayer. So often, Jesus, we talk about inviting you into our life. But here we find that you are the one inviting us into God's life. What an astonishing invitation this is. We ask Jesus, the luminous Nazarene, that you would light our way. That you would give us what we need. Whether it be courage, whether it be permission to take more time, whether it be forgiveness, that you would give us what we need as we desire to take you up on this very, very good invitation. As we come to your table, Jesus, we ask that you would provide what we need, and that is The fullness of who you are. We ask this in your name. Amen.